Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today's episode of Motherfuck Lore is brought to you by the show's generous supporters on Patreon. Listeners who go to patreon.com forward slash Derek and choose to support the show, either through a regular contribution or through an annual contribution, get access to discount codes, bonus episodes, the Motherfuck Lore listeners Discord community, and much more. Find out more at patreon.com forward slash Derek. And now, the show. Headstuff Podcast Network, welcome to Motherfucklore, a podcast about words, Irish, Irish words, and words from Ireland. I'm Dara Gaucher. And I'm Padre Kivonic. Hey, you got on, Padre, how are you this morning? Yeah, yeah, good. Uh, can't complain. I mean, I can complain, but you don't want to hear me complain, so I won't complain. This, this is our first time recording since the American election. It is. Uh, congratulations to Uncle Joe, um, who is now being... Uh, he's now the subject of a massive battle for possession between, at the last count, Whitestown County Louth, Carlingford County Louth, Newry County Town, <laughs> New Ross County Wexford and Ballinac <laughs> County Mayo. So I don't know who's going to win that one, but look, he's Irish anyway, he admits it himself. So uh, yes. that's, and, and at the end of the day, isn't that what's most important about the US presidential election? That we get we to name a, a fucking petrol station <laughs> after someone. It's great, and and I think what's great is especially that we he is a lover of poetry. He's a huge lover of poetry, and he's a huge lover of um, famous Seamus. So didn't he read? He read Heaney quite famously, didn't he? You wrote about him reading Heaney, actually. I wrote about him reading Heaney, yes, and it's 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 become one of his signature features. And the fact that he he also has quoted Yeats on occasion has brought him to the attention of certain. Uh, we'll, um, we'll forgive him that. You certain you're a skeptic uh, writers in England, but it's it's wonderful, I suppose, that Irish poetry is getting this level of attention at the moment, and that now people you're starting starting to see more of these think pieces on this, and it just happens, you know, that it's always a great moment for Irish poetry, but also for Irish writers. And as it happens this year, one of one of the one of the delightful events as someone who was a witness of Irish culture this year has been one of our greatest poets take a turn to nonfiction. Yeah, um, I assume you're talking about Dereny Griefer. I am talking about Dereny Griefer. The ghost and, in the throat, which, which... And the absolute sensation, ghost in the throat, oh. that everyone's talking about. Uh, that's, yeah, that's that's grabbed the country and, and, and larger feel by storm. Um, you told me a few weeks back that I cursed our chance of ever getting her on the show by saying I was going to get her on the show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought air. you had. I thought you had. But Derek, you have delivered. 
Uh-huh. Egg in your face. <laughs> <laughs> so, Falchka motherfucker, Darren Negreva. I'm absolutely delighted to be here. Thanks so much. I don't know. I don't know if you heard the podcast, but Derek promised the listeners that he would get you on the show. And I said, well, that's it. You've ripped it now. There's <laughs> no chance. She's going to be too busy. She's not going <laughs> to. When you promise. Because look, we started off this podcast um, several years ago, three, three and a half years ago, three years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, talking about the letter V and at the end of the episode Derek said we'll discuss the rest of the letters that are now in the Irish language that didn't used to be in the Irish language in a future episode and we still mm-hmm. haven't we still haven't <laughs> so he's got he's got a track record of not delivering on his promises but if he was going <laughs> to deliver on one of them I'm glad it's this one and I'm so so glad that you're here Mila Falcha. Oh, to awesome, live. You know, it's it's always a delight to listen to you chatting. So I'm kind of pinching myself now this morning that I'm here with you. <laughs> Stop. She knows what oh. to say. She's a great guest. <laughs> <laughs> well, does. between us now, because it, it's just the three of us here, you know. Actually, we're big fans of Mother Folklore in this house of this and, and of the book as well. And um, to the point where my eldest child turned 12 recently and he has started in the past three weeks a new career as an online book blogger. Now, (laughs) one of the books that he has chosen to review already is Mother Folklore. (laughs) (laughs) I amn't allowed and I'm not allowed to be sticking my nose in or telling him to change things. But if you're very good, I will send you a link to that rave review, which was written by our eldest son of Mother Folklore. I, I would love to see that. And my, my mom would love to see that, too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's, that, that's, that's such a wonderful thing. That's class. So, of course, I wasn't going to say no. I'm delighted. <laughs> Absolutely thrilled to be with you. Thank you. Our absolute pleasure. Um, for those of you who aren't familiar with her work yet, uh, Darren has been a poet in publishing in English and in Irish for... A number number of years now, Darren. Um, you've, I think it was the, your first collection was Dulasar, or was, or was that no? Was that was the second collection. It was Rayhood, um, wasn't it? Rayhood, yeah. Rayhood, yeah. yeah. Rayhood was the first, and then Dulasar. Like I was, I was very, very lucky from the start when I started to write Irish language poetry that there's such a vibrant and encouraging um, literary scene, Osgoelga, you know, and. I sent my poems quite early on to a competition in the Arachthus and they came in second place, which was really thrilling to me. And and I suppose I developed the confidence to send some of my poems to a publisher then. So I sent them to Pork Osnodig at Koshkim and um, he liked them and he published them in Ray Hjode, which was my first book, and then Dulasser. Um, and it's such a lovely process to work with him. I love the back and forth, you know, because it's old school. It's like you print everything out and he handwrites on, on it. You know, it's there's oh. no kind of email or anything like that. So <laughs> wow. somewhere here, I'm sure I still have those documents. And I just love his handwriting even, you know, it's very exciting to write something, send them to an editor and then have them arrive back to have the poems returned to you in the post, you know, and to open up an envelope and see the handwriting and all the suggestions and everything. So I loved that process of working with Kush Game and I was very fortunate that they brought out um two those two early books, you know, in, in fairly quick succession. Um yeah, so I, I think you know we can encourage each other within the literary community as editors and publishers and writers and it means a lot to someone who's beginning 
on, I don't know whether to say career, but on a path, say, as a writer, to have that kind of um, encouragement from early on. It makes a big difference, you know. Yeah, it's absolutely fantastic to, to know that there's that positivity and encouragement. And I think Cush came have a, a brilliant record of, of, of publishing young poets, of championing new Irish poetry. And one thing that really, really, lo- I love the titles of the collections. Hmm. Like Rayhoid and, and Dulas are like Rayhoid is a it's a moonstone, isn't it? It is. Yeah, yeah that's just gorgeous. Is. And Dulas is arguably one of my favorite titles of any book or collection or anything published ever. Dulas are like a dark flame. Yeah, yeah there's Oof. something you know. I could just I could just think about I could think about that word forever. You know, like the the images that it conjures in the mind. Dulas are. The music of the words, first of all. I was going to say that. Yeah. Yeah, And the flickering that's inside that word when you say it out loud, you know, do lasser, that it does kind of almost flicker and it immediately conjures that sense of something burning of a flame. But then the sense of do, you know, uh, to preface it and and what a contradiction it holds within it, a dark flame, you know, and, and that was something... That was something I suppose that uh, really drew my imagination. But you won't be surprised to hear that from very early on for me as a poet, um, the dictionary, the dictionaries, I should say, were really important to me. Marspraga, you know, that I would often just find myself literally paging and thumbing my way through a dictionary and that my eye would alight on a word like that and that it would almost startle me sometimes, you know, in in a in a very satisfying way, you know, this sense of engaging deeply with um, Irish in a way that wasn't just the spoken Irish, you know, um, that was kind of um, almost like linguistic fossils Im- embedded there on the pages of the dictionary, and I never lost that sense of astonishment that this. A dictionary is essentially for us, you know, a, a, a list of a list, huge, vast list and compendium of words that would have been familiar to the people who came before us, you know, and, and would have been used like, I mean, I don't know what context you'd necessarily be using something like doulasserin hmm. <laughs> in a daily basis. It's, it's awful. The, it's awful poetic to describe like, you know, the, the, a dark and fl- a smoky flame, like, you know, there's something yeah, that's, yeah, I can't even, yeah. I can't picture it. It's, it speaks to me, but I, I, I'm struggling to picture what a doulasser would would even look like, but it's magical. Yeah. It's brilliant. There I you just, go, Derek. If you if you, it, if you yeah. had a poetic inkling there, all of your years of trawling through dictionaries, you could have had the inspiration to write volumes and volumes of poetry instead of uh, a, a, me, a relatively successful Twitter account. <laughs> <laughs> There's even less money in poetry. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I remember th- when I the first fan came across the word Dulasar. I remember thinking it would be a great name for a cat. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 nice. Very witchy. So, yeah. um, when you that that's that was your first radio. It was your your first um, published collection of poetry nine years ago. Mm. But you'd obviously been writing poetry since before then. Yeah, yeah, and you know, it was something. Uh, I suppose it 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 came and took me by surprise. Poetry, you know, I I came to poetry as an adult. Um, so whenever I look back in those days where I initially started to 
write poetry or attempt to write poetry, it surprises me that I kept going and persisted with it. It's such a strange thing, you know, but um, I suppose it's important to say that when I began to write poetry, it was kind of from a place of a fright and a grief. Um, I was very close to my grandfather and um, when he was on his deathbed, the whole family was was called to be with him. So I travelled from Cork to Dublin on my own with the baby because my husband was working. And um, when we got the call in the middle of the night to come to the hospital, it was felt that it wouldn't really be appropriate to have the baby there, which I totally understand, you know. I mean, it's it, it's a it's a really hard time. And um, so I stayed, at, I stayed at my aunt's house with the baby while everyone went in. And that sense of distance, I think, was something to do with what sparked this in me. I was lying beside the baby trying to get him to sleep and um, lying in the darkness, this lines of kind of couplets of a poem Asquailga started to come to me and just insist upon themselves um, mm. over and over again, almost like almost like a lulling kind of a feeling, you know, or it was reassurance. Wow. And I, I really thought, like, or presumed to begin with that it must have been like bits of a poem that I'd heard in school or, you know, the way sometimes a song or a poem can come back to you at a time like that where you're really worried and sad um, but as it went on, I kind of realised, no, this is completely unfamiliar. So once the baby fell asleep, I hopped up and ran around trying to find pen and paper and wrote down those words that were coming to me and 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 kept going every day since then. And I'm always kind of embarrassed a little bit to tell that story because I think we don't often speak about that side that can sometimes make itself manifest, I suppose, in, in life, you know, that sometimes things are a little strange and a little mysterious. And, and that was one of the very rare moments in my life that really did happen like that, you know. And and that poem was Asquailga. It was in Irish and it was more unusual to me the fact that I was finding myself sitting down writing a poem than that I was writing a poem in Irish because, like, you know, at the time... I was I was a primary school teacher in a Gaelic school and I was raising my son through Irish. So, I mean, Irish was the language I was speaking all day, every day, pretty much. Um, so it wasn't unusual to me that it was Asquilga. What was unusual to me was that I was writing creatively at all and that I was writing a poem in particular, which I mean, I knew nothing about poetry. Maybe that's the best start, you know, maybe maybe not having the preconceptions about what poetry should be uh, and what an Irish poem should look like meant that it was it was really you on the page that what Maybe. was what was spilling out of you was 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 your truth as opposed to as you know as opposed to the poem you learned in school or being influenced by that or anything like it just the fact that you you, you hadn't really immersed yourself in 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 poetry per se but yeah, just sort of yeah I suppose out. maybe like anything. I mean, like, you know, with mother folklore, th- those are sometimes the most interesting voyages, aren't they? Where it's sparked by a genuine kind of curiosity where you find yourself in, say, like that image that I always love of, of where you find yourself walking into a darkened room and you're an unfamiliar room and you're feeling around for a light switch, you know, and then you know you sooner or later you'll find the light switch, but there are those few moments where you're plunged into darkness and you're literally feeling, you know, your way in. And um, 
I think that they can sometimes be the most interesting because you are being drawn along by a real sense of curiosity and you are really kind of seeking that sense of illumination, you know, and that sense of what's going on here? Where is this leading me? You know, and then you step on a Lego brick. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> definitely familiar in my uh, in my house anyway. <laughs> it's all, yeah, the, the whole business of Lego and then toys being on the floor. It's, it's the idea that yeah, there's, yeah, it's, I actually think that uh, children think they're decorating a room. <laughs> it's the only, you, know that, it's the only th- you know that poem, Sov Millish? Oh, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. Er and Doris, you know, like... I'm sorry, what are you doing getting angry that there's jam on the handle of the door? Like, if you, if, you're, if your life with a child is anything like my life with a child, your whole house is a shithole. And there's, <laughs> <laughs> oh no, there's a little bit of jam on the door. That is the least of your problems. <laughs> if there's jam, if the jam has reached as far as the door handle in my house, it's more than likely that there's jam all over the room, yeah. all over the table and all over the floor as well. So you've got bigger problems at that like, stage. Yeah, like Bosker Nondoris is wiped clean. There's jam on the bleeding couch. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yeah. So, Darren, so, after... Um, after two um, collections with uh, with Cush uh, came, then there was Dordain, the Chri, a hummingbird, your heart. Um, yeah. That was a, a little bit of a departure in a way, was it? I suppose it's funny. Oh, this is so interesting to look back like this because I rarely let myself the opportunity of looking back and really, I suppose we're all guilty of that, aren't we? To kind of sit down and have a chat about where you're at and how you got there. So thanks for allowing me this. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, once I had published those two first books, Ask Whale Guy, I suppose I was getting a lot of invitations. We're, ver- we're very lucky, I think, in Ireland that we have such a vibrant um, literary culture. And I had started to get a lot of invitations to perform or to read my poems I suppose in public um, and that was a process that I really enjoyed I, I love the sense of you know that there might be a literary event happening where people in the audience have gathered to to listen to a story or to listen to poems and that that's why they've brought themselves out of their snug little homes and all the way to this library or this venue and I love standing up and, and, and seeing the poems as Gaelke, but the more time went on, the more I kind of, I suppose, uh, like any of us who are bilingual, sometimes I I feel a little um, apprehensive that other people might feel excluded in some way. And it's been important to me in my life to have the sense um that I'm opening doors to people, doors and windows and anything I can open um, and and that there's a sense of welcoming people in um, to the work and, and to the writing. And, and I found that for me, in order to hand some of the listeners that would be in one of those audiences the keys to the poems that I wanted to speak to them, that it would necessarily involve translating them to English. Um which in some ways is saddens me a little bit, I suppose, because I would love if we all lived in a country where, you know, any one of us could stand up and say a poem in Irish and we would all understand and that there wouldn't be any need for this scaffold, you know. Um, mm-hmm. But look, at, I suppose it is what it is at the same time. So in order to um, 
opened those doors and windows, I felt that I needed to start providing an, an English translation as well as the Irish and and Don Avish Griefagum. So um I started trying to translate the poems to English and that was excruciating to tell <laughs> oh, you the truth it was so hard and like really shocked me because English is my first language I never heard a word of Irish until I started in the Gael school at the age of four so you'd imagine or I would have imagined on paper say that this would have been really easy you know this is just a matter of saying the same thing that I've said in my dawn and now trying to say it in my first language as a poem no it wasn't it wasn't <laughs> like that at all <laughs> <laughs> there's a there's an understatement oh. to God. It's oh. but it's it's challenging and like there to, to like translation of poetry is an art form in and of itself. Like there's loads of poets mm. who don't translate their own work. They're more than happy mm. to have someone to have like the Gabriel Rosenstocks of the world who who love translating and are really, really good at to let them have a bash at it. Mm. Um Oh, there's no one like Gabriel, honestly. I mean we're so like how would you even describe it? I always imagine like Gabriel's able to leap. He's able to leap between languages with this like amazing flourish, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are so many of his texts that I knew by heart from start to finish because of the joy they gave me as an adult when I would read them to my children, you know, that it was always his translations I'd pick up because there would be some little intricacy. There'd be some really interesting flourish that would just uh, draw me back again and again. I think linguistically he's extraordinary, you know, like I would actually say genius, you know, like I really have such mass on Gabriel Rosenstock. He's unreal. But at this point, you see, to get back to your question, at this point, there was no one knocking on my door, ringing my doorbell <laughs> coming out. <laughs> I'd love to translate your poems to English. You know, there's no, there was nothing like that for me. And I'll be completely honest with you. I did spend some time in my life feeling very sorry for myself because of that, because it was very clear to me, you know, I really had devoted a lot of my heart to this, to learning how to write poems. I felt I had given or I was trying to give so much of my day to learning this craft. And I really was aware that I was in an apprenticeship and I looked around me very eagerly and I could see the path that had happened for other writers and that seemed like the only path, you know, and that that path was you write your poems in Irish, you try to craft them as well as you can. If they're good enough, translators will come and translate them to English. The very um, well thought of and established literary publishing house will eventually publish a book of yours and then you'll be on your way. And your main fidelity is to the poems, but this is the path that you should aim for. That was my understanding um, from observing poets that I deeply admired and would have been, say, a generation ahead of me. Our, our generation or two ahead of me. And um, as I was going through that process, that just wasn't happening for me, you know. I was still sitting on my own, writing my poems, um, being invited to give these readings, which was really satisfying to meet the readers, you know. And 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 eventually I just thought, oh, excuse my language now, excuse my French, <laughs> excuse my English. I just eventually thought, fuck it, I'm not hanging around here waiting for, you know, a knight in shining armour to knock on my door. Mm. I am going to pick up my pencil and no matter how hard it is, I am going to teach myself to translate these bloody poems myself. If it kills me, I am going 
to teach this to myself because I'd already taught myself to write poems in the first place. I thought, OK, even though it's really hard and it's it's much harder than I thought, I'm going to keep at it. And so slowly, 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 I did keep at it. And I'm still learning that, you know, I'm still I feel like you learn that art of translation afresh every time you sit down to translate a new poem because it's the poem itself that teaches you every time mm-hmm. and it's really it is really tricky you know you're dead right as you say it's it, it is an art in itself and um I'm glad I did it looking back now I am very very glad that I had to pull my boots on and teach myself how to do it because that taught me an element of grit and resilience that has stood me in good stead as I um, wrote subsequent books and subsequent poems. But at the time, I would <laughs> at the time I would have loved for someone to come in, <laughs> just swoop in like Superman, you know. Well, that's um, the, and, it's the benefit of hindsight that you can look back and say that was worth it. But she's at the time, it must have been like. You must have felt a bit like Sisyphus like at times, just. Yeah, yeah, because it was constant. I, I, I It felt like constant failure, you know, artistically. I, I, I kept trying to make the English version of the poem feel like a poem in itself or try to try to soar in, in its own little way. And, and it just wasn't working for so, so long. And. And some of them, like, you know, are, are, are still, I would I would judge as failures, but um, some of them started to make their way then, you know, and started to be able to kind of flutter up and fly a little as poems in themselves to a point where I was kind of happy with them. And it's kind of been an interesting and very different way of coming to know my myself as a writer, like the, the self that I come to know through writing Irish language poems is very different than the elements of myself I come to know through translating my own poems, you know. Mm. So it's been interesting. And and as I say, at this point, I wouldn't change it for the world. Hmm. It's interesting. We had uh, Niall O'Gallagher, this great Scottish poet, on a, a few months oh, back. Yeah. And he was talking about, I suppose, the the whole business of translation and that he's translated some Billy Jenkinson work into Scots Gaelic. And uh, he, he would have guess, other, other other poet friends translate his work as opposed to translate himself. And the idea, that, I suppose, I can see why some poets would feel like they don't like spoiling the ambiguity of, mm. that, that can make a poem very beautiful, but they could, that the... A, 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 another poet it becomes a new work based on your work it's a and you get so rarely get to collaborate as a writer mm. I actually would like to say on Betty Jenkinson mm. what a fascinating writer honestly mm. I mean we are so spoiled in Irish language literature and, and, and in poetry which I suppose I would know more about you know and, and similarly in English I, I would tend more towards kind of nerding out in poetry rather than in prose but Irish language poetry, mm. you know, the, the uh, talk about the shoulders of giants. You know, we already mentioned Rosenstock, Biddy Jenkinson, the artistry and defiance that she has shown over a whole life in literature mm. is something I personally, and I'm sure other a lot of other people do, draw great heart from. You know, I mean, she has written. I, when did she start to publish her books of poetry? In the eighties, I'd imagine. Um, you put me and on, put me on the spot here. <laughs> yeah, 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 I'd imagine. I could be wrong. I'd have to seek be, that out again. It'd but be, like, it'd be either Ishki Bahar or Bosch de Gintley, but they were late eighties. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So eighties, say. 
when she starts to embark on publication. And again, you know, Cush Game have published her from the start and shown great belief and in her work and great encouragement and, and have stood by her through, which I think is really impressive, like with a publisher, you know, that they will be there for the emerging writers and that they're there 100% for the established writers as well, you know. Um, but when she started to publish Asquilga and, and, and she wrote, was it a letter or an article to Poetry Ireland Review putting the foot down about why she refused to have her work translated oh, to English. Oh, yeah. This was, this was amazing. It's, it's, I would prefer yeah. not to be translated into English in Ireland. It's yes. a small, rude gesture to those who think that everything can be harvested and stored without loss in an English-speaking Ireland. Mm. I mean, I, I personally subscribe more to your line of thinking around poetry, and I, I love the translation of poetry. I love the act of translating poetry. I love playing with the words and the ambiguity, so I like when things are translated into as many languages as possible. But absolute props to Biddy on that, because that's... Props. Uh, yeah, she that is, is unreal. So, and yeah. it's like she does, uh, she does permit her poems to be translated into other languages. Like I know that she has a whole body of work that's been translated to French um, and I'm sure to many other languages. But oh my gosh, I just admire her so much for that stand, you know, because that really took courage. And, you know, for someone like me, when I was beginning to write, um, the fact that that was the type of hero I was looking up to, you know. She, her books meant so much to me. And like you, I could have recited that chunk of that piece that you wrote, you know, the small root gesture by heart. I really took it to my heart and I took her, I took her, I suppose, uh, rig intellectual rigour on the page and the way that she composed her poems um, really to heart as well. I was just really in awe of Biddy, you know, and I still am. She's, oh, we're just so lucky to have her. Yes, Start me on new Lily Gonal now next and we'll be here all day. <laughs> <laughs> We've done, we spent, we spent an hour chatting with uh, Shun Nguyen about new Lily Gonal once and oh, it remains one of my favourite episodes. She's, she's utterly unbelievable. Yeah. She's fantastic. Yeah. But you're not so bad yourself, Darren. Like, you're not. <laughs> Wait, like, <laughs> I Just, have to say, though, like, I mean, thank you for the compliment, but I honestly feel like I, I, I'm i the type of person as as a writer that I look around me and I look ahead of me all the time. And when you're looking around you at your peers and those who have gone ahead of you and you're seeing people like Neil Ligonel, Billy Jenkinson, Gabriel Rosenstock, when I look at my peers, you know, and I'm seeing Alvin Garvey, Afric Mackay, Simon O'Fuelan, Kieran A. Like, I mean, once I start listing now, I'll always, you know, forget someone because that's the perils of this kind of thing. But I, I would never think, oh, and I'm not so bad myself. I would always feel that sense of, wow, I am so fortunate to be alive at the same time as these people who were writing, you know, as Gwilgan, and that these are the people I see around me and that I get to, as a reader, be engaging with this extraordinary work. Like, I, f I just feel so lucky, you know, and and I draw such strength from from the poets who are around me and, and from the their tenacity, you know, because it isn't easy to devote yourself to a life of composing poetry, as Gwilgan. That's no. not an easy path to choose in life. <laughs> 
you know? <laughs> no, my career guidance counselor said the same thing in secondary school. Like it's not, <laughs> it's not the, it's not the way forward. But you have look, I, I'm, I'm mocking and joking when I say you're not so bad yourself. You've been recognised again and again and again. You've been given, uh, you were shortlisted for the Poetry Now Award in 2016. You've won the Michael Hartnett Award at Eggshire Hartnett, which is like one of the big ones. Uh, you won the the Rooney Prize for Irish yeah. Literature. Like, how does it feel, I'm putting you on the spot now, <laughs> how, but how does it feel when other people say you're that good? Um... I would take I take all that with extreme ambivalence, to be perfectly honest with you, because all of the awards that you've mentioned there were all for CLASP, which is the first book that I published in English. So when I started to translate my poems from Irish to English, what I started to find was that when I would get that itch that would mean that a new poem was insisting upon itself, sometimes that was starting to happen to me from the beginning as it through English. Um, so whereas initially that poetic impl- impulse always arrived as Gaelga, suddenly this little itch was starting to arrive in English. And I knew it was my own fault. I knew I'd invited that in because I was the one who had thrown open the door to the English language. I was the one who had spent hours and hours and hours trying to translate the poems to English. And now here they were, arriving in English, not in Irish. And that was something that I really struggled with at the start as well, because I felt like this was a betrayal, you know, that I was engaging in an act of betrayal against myself, but also against the language. So I, uh, as you'd say online, a lot of feelings, a lot of feelings. <laughs> a lot of, so many feelings. But that sort of so, English arriving yeah. as an as an, a sort of an unbidden imposter, like this sort of breaking into your... Um, your poetic zen and, and making itself come forward ahead of the Irish. Is that something you pushed back against or is it something you feel that you've come to terms with and now some of them are going to be English and some of them are going to be Irish and, and that's how it is and, and they're equally valid? How does yeah, it work? Ex- except unbidden isn't really accurate to what it was, right? Because I was the one who did it. You know, I had no one to blame but myself. I was the one, it was bidden, you know, I was the one who'd brought English in. And now, then I had to deal with the repercussions, which was you let English into your artistic practice while well, English is there to stay. So um, it was really, in some ways, it was very interesting and exhilarating for me because English is my first language. So uh, like like dancing, you know, like there were, uh, I, I, I will always be, I will always be limited in the kind of dances I can do because my body can only bend to certain steps, you know, because I came to the language late, because I'm lazy, basically, you know, that I haven't done with what so many other of the writers that I mentioned earlier that I admire so much do, which is like spend so much time in the Gaeltog, spend so much time studying the language in an ongoing way. So um, I am kind of like the kind of dance I can do in Irish is kind of limited, but you let me dance in English and I dance very differently. And that was really exhilarating to me when I started to find my stride because suddenly here I was, you know, I, I was able to spin and I was able to jump and I was able to do all kinds of things that that I wasn't really capable of without enormous effort as Gaelga. Not to say it was easy, it was still really hard. I mean, writing a poem isn't an easy thing ever. Mm-hmm. Um, but 
when I came to realising that I was working towards a book of poems in English, um, I had kind of become so exhilarated in, in the act of writing the poems in English that I was carried away by that. So I tried to put the ambivalence and the feeling that I was betraying something to one side, focus on writing that book. And then when that book was published, like you say, you know, it just started winning this string of awards, which was really satisfying. And yet I would have given back every single one of those awards to have been able to write in Irish the way that I was able to write in English, you know. Um, Mm. Now, I continued to write in both languages in parallel, um, like the thing that I've written most recently now is a poem as Gaelga, you know, and there was a whole book of poems in Irish only that followed class, which was called I was, was going to say that I've got a copy of Oyer right here. And yeah, so that was what the one that followed. And then after that, there was a book of of dual tra- of, of translations on facing pages, which kind of drew on all the book all the poems that I'd composed in Irish to that point. So, like, I mean, it wasn't by any means that I put Irish to one side, but I suppose there were repercussions to letting English in. And there's still repercussions that I'm dealing with at, at, at a human level and also at an artistic level, you know. That's the history of the island, repercussions to letting English in. Yes. <laughs> and once yeah. you let them in, they're not going. It's just That's it, <laughs> yeah. They're God. there. Does it speak, does it speak to the... Um, does it speak to the the public and the artistic acceptance of English more so than Irish? Like that, it's not as if, and I'm sorry now that I please don't be offended at this, but it's it's not as if the quality of clasp is that much better than everything else you've ever ever written. You know, it's it's great. I love the poems. I think they're they're very moving. But I feel the same about Dulasser, uh, and I think that's got some just just some amazing work in it. But one was highly recognised everywhere. And the other one, it, like so many volumes of Irish poetry, of Irish language poetry, it's there. It's got its audience. We love it. And you get some recognition for it. But it's it's an English language world and it's it's tragic in a sense. Yeah, in a sense it is. And I think that's where some of the feeling of betrayal came for, like it came from within myself, you know, um, that feeling like of, you know, Oh shit, am I selling out here? And I I genuinely don't think that's what it was, you know, because there's something that's extremely undeniable in when you're given to writing poetry and when a poem is coming, it's like giving birth. You can't stop it, you know. And with my poems, what I find is that it's never a conscious decision which language they're going to be in. So the fact that these poems were just coming, insisting on themselves. And I kind of had to let myself be the conduit to let them be written through me. I just had to let them be who they were, you know. So even though I break myself and and really castigate myself over that element of my artistic practice, a certain part of me just feels like, look, it is what it is, you know. Um, the poems want to be what they want to be and you have to let them be what they are. And um, yeah, it's it's a shame that the way that the world has been, the way that the cards have been stacked, that that's the way things go with, you know, with an English language publication, that it's more visible, that it's more accessible to people who make those kind of calls, you know. Um 
But yeah, no, I don't know what to say about that really, except that it's still something I'm thinking about and maybe that I'm still too close to it to really be able to take a step back and, and see things clearly. Well, one thing's for certain, it's not selling out because if there was a way for poets to sell out, they'd be a lot richer than they are. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it's. I don't think it's possible at the moment for an Irish poet to sell out. Uh, mm. I really, really don't think so. We'll be right back after this short message from another great Headstuff Podcast Network show, Connor Reed's Words That Effect, which I'm sure lots of you who are lovers of literature will really enjoy. I'm Connor Reed with Words to That Effect. How do the Victorians invent time? Where do all those pirate cliches come from? Should we all read romance novels? Why are kids so obsessed with dinosaurs? What makes the perfect detective story? What happens to culture and society in a post-apocalyptic world where everything has stopped? Words to that effect tell stories of the fiction that shapes popular culture. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts and at wttepodcast.com. Before we get on to your your um not your latest poem that you just mentioned there but your latest book there's one other thing I want to ask you about and you may have seen in in the news recently that the Irish people donated in overwhelming numbers to the Navajo and Hopi peoples uh, for mm. their COVID-19 relief. And it was kind of portrayed as this payback for the Choctaw gift of 1847. Now, long before we were ever talking about a COVID, you were working with, um, was it um, Leanne Howe? It was the Choctaw poet on a commemoration of that Choctaw gift. Uh, I just, I found that absolutely beautiful and fascinating. How, how did that come about? Um, I I think that there's a certain sympathy between our peoples, you know, and I think that it's it can be easier to communicate um, culturally, I suppose, and, and through poetry with people from certain backgrounds than others, you know. So um, I, myself and Leanne were talking about this and, and neither of us can remember how it started, except that it was something to do with the Internet. You know, I don't know if it was Twitter or um, and Twitter is so maligned, you know, but that has really been the beginning of a lot of artistic conversations for me where I've developed a relationship with someone that has then led to a really interesting collaboration or that they've influenced my writing or that, you know, they end up... Um, with a poem that was influenced by them, including you, Daryl. I wrote a poem called False Friends. I don't know if you remember that, which was really influenced by your Twitter account. And (laughs) and the whole first verse of it is like, the Irish for this is this, the Irish for this is this, the Irish for this is this. And then it kind of builds into something slightly different in the second part. I remember that the the Irish for seaweed is famine was so evocative. The way you you spelled famine as as an English word for, you know, like no, no food. And it just, it was, it was such a, it was a just brilliant idea for poem. And I was just very touched to actually have been even vaguely associated with it, even indirectly. Yeah. Well, look, there you go. Now you're, you can call yourself a muse. <laughs> um, and you've been yeah. called, you've been called worse on this podcast. So that's not bad. <laughs> that's, that's for sure. <laughs> But yeah, it was something like it was something kind of similar with Leanne how um however it began, we started this dialogue through poetry where we started to compose this sequence of poems where 
we were in dialogue with each other. So um, we we composed the poems. She composed them in Choctaw. I composed them as Gaelga. And then we used English as a bridge between the poems that we were composing. So it's a trilingual sequence. And it's speaking to that. I, I always kind of lose, I lose um, my ability to, to describe this. I think... I think maybe it's because I'm so moved by it still. Mm. Um, and, and, and it was speaking to that sense of, of, of the gift that the Choctaw people gave our people, you know, in 1847, that they sent, that they gathered money and sent it to us to help alleviate us in, in, in those, through those horrors, I suppose. Um, and it was really moving to have that, we did it all through email, you know, where she'd send me a poem and I'd think about it and, and I would send one back and that it really just arose from a deep sense of connection between us as women, but also uh, both of us are, are writers that really feel the past alive in ourselves and through our work. And um, we had a beautiful moment together. Like, we, you know, we've met several times Um we're actually both born on the same day. We're, we're, yeah, she's a lovely no person. Yeah, yeah. Um, so she, uh, like we've met here in Ireland and then last year, was it last year? God, with the pandemic, I've just lost track of time completely. <laughs> and we, we were both invited. Yeah, we were both invited to Concordia University in, in Montreal. And um, we performed it there together on stage for the first time. Uh, we'd never spoken the poems out loud in the same room with each other before. It was really moving. There was, I was very surprised by the size of the audience as well that, that came. And there was just that kind of an electric atmosphere in the room, you know, and both of us really felt as though we were there representing our peoples and, and we were both so far from home and yet the language was so alive within us, you know, and I'll, I'll never forget that. It was really one of the most moving moments of my life, I think, you know. Mm -hmm. And at the end, like both of us were, were stood on, on podiums at either end of the stage, speaking the various parts of the poem. And, and at the end, there was just this moment of silence where people weren't sure whether to clap or and and we both just walked towards each other on impulse and just embraced each other. And it just felt so, wow. it just felt so electric and, and so important, you know, and, and that's the kind of moment that poetry can create, that sense of connection across time and across distance and, and, and from one trauma to another, I suppose. I'm absolutely, I've got goosebumps even just the way you're just yeah. telling the story of it happening because that that connection is is it's so real that cultural memory obviously mm. like neither of you have firsthand suffered through the tragedies of the 19th century but mm. it's ingrained in in the cultural memory and it comes through in the poetry the poems are beautiful i know some of them were published in the irish times um, and it's just they're absolutely they're stunning like playing around with words as well like that using of a bridge using of English as a bridge I think that's that's such a brilliant way to describe it and how like um, you're talking about we can only see the past through a keyhole but Paul Ukruk is a keyhole and Paul Ukruk spelled a different way is the hungry hole the hole that hungers mm. the, the hole that took from us and it's oh, mm. sorry it's class I'm going to yeah 
It's, better talk about the book because I'm just going to keep talking so, about poetry for. <laughs> yeah, so in in Darren and Clasp, there was a one of the one of the poems was especially prophetic. There's a poem called "The Horse Under the Hearth," which alluded to Queen Cartolira, uh, which, which, which which yeah. which went on to become a fairly significant work for you. Mm, yeah. It's so interesting. I know I'm repeating myself, but like, thanks for letting me think through all these things. Yeah, it it fascinates me now looking back that when I was going through that process of transition from writing in Irish and then translating my poems in Irish to writing poems that stood solely in English, it fascinates me that I would have looked to Queen Arthi Lyra that early, you know, whenever I was writing this poem, maybe maybe 2013, 2014, mm-hmm. and that I was still almost reaching my hand back and 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 touching my fingertips off the tradition still. Like, you know, don't let go of me. I'm still here, you know, hold hold on to something. What am I going to hold on to? Like with that image we were talking about of the dark room and feeling for the light switch, that that was one of the light switch I was finding was like, the queen is still here, you know, and, and the... I suppose Queen Arthur was such an important text for me or has been such an important text for me throughout my life and that it took me quite a while to to understand just how important it was. Um, and this is one of the ways it first made itself felt in my artistic practice. When I look at this poem now, The Horse Under the Hearth, what I was fascinated by at this early stage was something I had come across. Um, it was in a very short essay, like a couple of pages that was in a volume of the Cork Literary Review. Um, and I think it was Eugene O'Connell who had written it. And he mentioned something that wasn't in the poem. He mentioned it almost in passing. Um, this idea that after Arthur Lyra had been killed, after Eileen Dovney Connell had found his body, after she had spoken this powerful queen, this keen over his body, that was so powerful that it has made its way over hundreds of years to find us in our literary canon now. After she spoke it, that something had happened with his horse, that something had happened with his horse that had resulted in the horse being killed and the horse's skull being buried under the flagstone of the heart in her marital home. And that was the illusion that was made in this, as I say, very brief essay. Um, I'll read out to you a quote from the essay because I have the book here. Um, So though the Queen castigates Eileen's brother-in-law Baldwin for handing the horse over to his great enemy after Art's death, it is known that she had the animal stolen back. The horse was later shot and had its head buried under the flagstone in the parlour of Rawley House. So, I mean, that that's literally the total, that's the total reference to, to the horse's head within that essay. And that was enough for me that I just could not stop thinking about this image. The fact that there being a skull there under the flagstone, that you could be sitting by the fire and know that your husband, who you were grieving, that his beloved horse, that had resulted in his death, that the skull would be there under your feet, you know. And that image drove me to write this poem, which was in clasp. And I think that energy was what drove me subsequently to write A Ghost in the Throat. Yeah, so this was the first venture into into prose and the book that literally everyone's talking about, A Ghost in the Throat, 
Uh, and I don't know, like, it's... I hope you're not going to be offended if I say it's kind of hard to describe what genre Ghost in the Throat fits into. That's not necessarily I, I'll tell a bad you. thing. I'll tell yeah. you. Okay, Do you okay. want me to tell you? Yes, yes, please. And please. It, I, I think, from my point of view, it, that it's just an adventure story. Nice. That's what I think. It's an adventure story. It's a story of an ordinary woman who looks a lot like me because it probably is mostly like me, <laughs> um, becoming increasingly obsessed with a poem called Queen Arthi Lyra and eventually becoming so obsessed that she wants to find out more about the poet who first composed that poem and setting off on an adventure to find out as much as she can about that other woman. And in trying to find out more about her, she often ends up finding out things about herself. Like any good adventure story. Yeah. Amazing. That's how I'd see it anyway. But it's not easy for people in bookshops and in libraries because they're like, yeah, but come on now. Is it fiction? Is it nonfiction? Is it poetry? Is it literary criticism? It's all of those things. But in, in at, its, at its heart and at its core, and I think this is why readers have responded to it so strongly, it's an adventure story. And it just, you know, the, there isn't a hero like there often is in an adventure story. It's just a very fallible um, ordinary woman who often makes big mistakes. That's me. That's you. <laughs> <laughs> so it is you. So it is you because there's that that's that that ambiguity is one of the real um one of the lovely things about the book is like is is this is this you? Is it a version of you? Is it is it someone you you can be or is it someone you were? And it's 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 fantastic. Like I mean you, you do tell us this is a female text, but that's about the only thing that's that's very, very clear about this, really. And I love that. And I think it's all of those things. And I think the stories we tell ourselves of our own lives, of our own individual lives and of what's going on changes all the time. And the sense of a self is a very slippery thing. So, you know, I often think of this book as we, we spend so much time or a lot of people spend so much time thinking about it and asking me questions about, you know, um, what exactly is this book? And and I often just feel like saying, look, it's like anything, you know, where I would sit down at a bus stop and just be chatting to someone and say, look, I'll tell you a true story. Yeah, it's a true. It's true. And it's a story. This is the true story of my life over the past few years. And you would take that as a given, I think, you know, it's a true story. It's both truth and it's story. It's the truth, which I'm going to tell you as a story. <laughs> you know, um, yeah. and it like, I mean, the, that's just what it is. You know, it is what it is. I know from being in, from having gone through the publishing business uh, twice so far as that when you were trying to get, I guess, when you're trying to get people to either um, publish a book for you or actually get bookshops to sell it for you, you kind of need to explain what it is to them based on, on on something that's been successful before. I think I seem to remember somebody just pr- um, presenting with a folklore's Irish mammies meets eats, shoots and leaves or something, which, you know, <laughs> is ter- very wrong and yet weirdly right. And these things can be, but in situations like that, it helps to have a, a good team on your side. It helps. And I remember when Lisa Cohen, who is one of... Um, who is one third of Tram Press, along with Laura Waddell and Sarah Davis-Goff. When Lisa was on speaking with you, um, 
that she said. What's what she say? It's a cross between pole dark and notes to sell. Something like that. That was class. Yeah. And yeah. I loved the way she followed it by saying something like, and it's so metal. <laughs> but it is, it is quite metal, you know. I mean, when yeah. you think of the image of Eileen Dovney Connell finding Art's body falling to her knees, scooping up palmfuls of his blood, drinking it, and then yeah. speaking this remarkable poem over his body. I mean, that is so metal, you know. This is an image that we have inherited and that belongs to all of us. It's an image of our literary history and Eileen Dove belongs to all of us, you know. And and I suppose that's something I was trying to honour through this book is that this is a, this is fertile ground, you know. So many people have written about, translated, have composed choral works, opera, Theatre, films around Queen Arthur Lyra. And this is just another Cluck La Carn, you know, this book. This is just me placing a stone with the Carn to the Carn in memory of Eileen Dovney Connell and saying, look, this is what I'm adding to your memory. And many, 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 I hope many, many, many more people will will follow and will add more stones to that Carn. And, and we're so fortunate to have this legacy of her voice this living voice that is still with us and i just love it i love it so much it's um one of the the, the standout quotes and i think it's i think it's even a pull quote uh in the reviews and when we first met i was a child and she had been dead for centuries and it yeah. just sort of speaks to the duality of the fact that eileen dove has been dead for centuries but she's still very very much with us and every single incarnation or tribute or homage or any kind of reference to Queen Artie Lyra, um, whether it's your book or whether it's Mancon McGann doing a film where it's set in modern day Limerick uh, or, you know, or Tom McIntyre's play, every single one just brings back to life the ghost of this woman who's given us one of the one of the most enduring, most haunting and absolutely most metal moments in Irish history. Yeah. Absolutely. I agree with you. And and as I say, we're all so fortunate. We're fortunate to, to have her legacy still with us. And we're also fortunate that so many artists from different backgrounds have responded to it and by responding to it, have carried her work and some legacy of the woman that she once was onto different audiences, you know. Unreal. It's an amazing, mm. it's an amazing, amazing read. Uh, I, the problem is, and I know that like the, the narrator both is and isn't you and, and mm. has been and will be and so on and so forth. I just feel that if we start to ask you, like, what kind of research did you have to do and how did this happen and how did that happen, that we're just going to go through telling the story of the book and people should just go and buy the book because it's well worth it. Yeah, I would love if people would buy the book because I feel like um, I feel like with a ghost in the throat that anything that has happened to it on its path since publication by Tram Press and any of the successes that it has met in the meantime is totally down to readers, you know, and that, uh, you know, publishing a book in the middle of a pandemic, that's not an easy thing to do. And I've been so, so fortunate with Tramp and with our publicist, Peter O'Connell, and with all the journalists that have allowed us time and space and all the readers who have said nice things about us and who have given us a home in their hearts. Like, you know, that has been extraordinary to me. The fact that you can still 
you can still take that leap, you know, that leap, you know, of faith, really, in publishing a book. And I always think this isn't a glamorous image, but I always think of publishing a book almost like um, throwing a Frisbee, you know, like, is someone going to be there to catch it? Oh, God, yes. (laughs) Yeah, just like throw a Frisbee into the world. Like, is it just going to land sadly on the ground or is someone, is a reader going to catch it? And I've been so delighted that this book has succeeded in finding readers and in finding the most extraordinary readers, you know, who have really um, taken it into their hearts, but also questioned it and um, found interesting ways of looking at it and, and building on things that are in it. And I really have this and starting to they're starting to visit and pay pilgrimage to various places that are mentioned in the book as well. And I really think that um, or I really hope that this book will encourage people to engage with Queen Arthur Lyra, which is published in full at the back of the book. Yes. On their own, that they will that they will engage with the poem themselves in their own way and that that will carry them on their own adventures, separate from the little adventure that I went on in writing this book. And that Eileen Dove will continue to be alive and with all of us on those various adventures, you know. Do you see it possible like a, a Cork version of Bloomsday where people visit the various parts of um, the, of Cork that are mentioned or alluded to? Oh, gosh. And, and drink handfuls of blood. Oh, well, Lord. Well, guilty black pudding is kind of blood, isn't it? Oh, God. If it's, if we're going it's, down a strange road now. Yeah, if it's human blood, I think we've written the next sci-fi adventure. Mm. Uh, <gasps> God, I hope not. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, I just hope not. I love this idea of everybody taking their personal yeah, journey I do too. alongside Eileen Eichunnel. But uh, I don't know, just this idea that it would all be led by some Egypt in a costume. Is, uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that'll never happen. <laughs> Oh, strange, stranger okay. things have happened. I know. Maybe, um, maybe, maybe in a hundred years time, they'll be celebrating, um, I don't know, the, a ghost in the throat. We'll all be, we'll all be making several pilgrimages. I don't know about that. Now, actually, something that's been really important to me artistically is holding on to as strong as possible a sense of humility about this kind of thing. You know, like I really have felt like with this book, A Ghost in the Throat, that anytime anyone compliments it, I kind of leave it like like water off a duck's back because I feel like it's Eileen Dove that they're complimenting really, you know, because she's the, she's the pulse in this book and none of it would have happened if it wasn't for her. And that I have a real sense as well, rather than holding on to this book, like mine, you know, this mm-hmm. is mine, I'm great or whatever, that I have the sense of how many people uh, were involved in the path that Eileen Dovney Connell took to find me. Um, along the centuries, you know, how many people, how many women spoke the poem and the oral tradition, you know, um, and Mrs. Morgan O'Connell, as she calls herself, the fact that 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 her book first resulted in the transcription and the publication of the Queen and that then it made its way into the literary canon and that all the people we've mentioned already who were involved in artistic interpretations, that they carried it further onwards. And then the sense that this book grew from that. Well, like, as I say, it's just another cluck lacarn. It's just another step in that path. And that 
this poem is of such potency and such importance that it will fly onwards and soar onwards again. So I just feel very kind of like happy to be involved in this small way and um, really glad that it has found some more readers with this book, but in the knowledge that it will continue on its own path, you know. Well, it's it's not the end of the journey for the poem, but you'll allow us to say that it's, it's a significant step. Mm-hmm. And it's it's an enjoyable step. More importantly, I think it's a it's it's a fitting tribute to definitely my favorite poem that's ever been written in any language. And I think that a ghost in the throat is it's it's a more than fitting vessel to carry the poem on another step. Oh, I hope you're right. Yeah, I really hope you're right. Darren, you've been nominated in two categories in the Irish Book Awards. I have. Well. Again, like I would say, you know, a lot of that is down to Eileen Dove. You know, she had a hand in this as well. <laughs> so people should go, people should, our listeners should go and vote for you right now, shouldn't they? Yeah, I think if by the time this is broadcast, the voting process is still open, that any votes that readers are willing to cast on behalf of Ghost and Throat would be um, very much appreciated by me and by my amazing publishers, Tramp Press as well. And do, and do it for Eileen Dove. Do it for Eileen Dove. Eileen Dove a boo. And and you don't have to take our word for either. Read the book. Buy the book as well. There you go. Yeah. (laughs) Buy the book as well and do yourself a favour and you can thank me later. Is this the bit where you say it's available in all good bookstores for 16 euro or from Tramp Press's website? Well, you just said that, so I, I, I believe you. Yeah. Can, can I add to that that like if, if uh, listeners are willing to take a chance on this book, that while they're at their online bookshop, which I, I would recommend Kenny's, which is brilliant, but your local bookshop will be taking um, orders online, maybe throw in a volume of Irish language poetry as well while you're at it. You know, pick out a nice book for yourself by Noon Ligonel or Louis de Puer, Betty Jenkinson or Alva Nigarvi or Afric Mackay or anything. There's so much choice and your bookseller will be able to advise you and you'll be surprised. I promise you'll be surprised by how much you enjoyed that experience of reading a poem. That's a wonderful suggestion. Uh, Darren, before we wrap up, um, first of all, what's what's next? Are you working on a follow up or an, a new project or? Well, um, as I was saying to you, I'm currently at work on on a new poem, Masquelga, but it's slow. It's very slow work. <laughs> Some of them are slower than others. Yes, of course. Um, and as well as that, I have a book of poems coming out, um, poems that were written in English. So the follow up to Clasp, which came out in 2015. And this one is called To Star the Dark and it's coming out in springtime. Wonderful. And we love to ask all our guests what their favourite Irish word is. Hmm. I think I will say do lesser <laughs> after the conversation that we had earlier. Do lesser. That's yeah. slippery. so good. I think it's a good one. It, it's really metal. Yeah. <laughs> metal <laughs> AF. <laughs> Darren Nikrifa, Kara Mila Mila Magath. Thank you so much for joining us. Kara Mila Magath, Darach, Taglondram Gromayan, Salivagas, Kara Mila Magath, Yeah, I've been waiting for this for so long, and I'm just so glad we finally got, got you to got, got to introduce you to our lovely listeners. Oh, thank you, thank you, listeners. So until the next time, mind yourselves and uh, slant from me. I guess slant, Ramsha. 
Sloan. Hey, Dara again. Thank you so much for listening to the show today. Thank you for welcoming us again into your headphones. Thank you to Brian for doing the production work on this episode. Thank you, Brian, for all his efforts in making us sound professional and good. Thank you to Kristen Shield for doing the amazing artwork. If you want to contact the show, you can email us at motherfucklordheadstuff.org. You can support the show on Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash Derek. Listeners who support the show there can get access to a range of bonus content, and including discounts on Kirsten Shields, our prints, and some other works too. Until then, slon. This has been a production of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Harley Rodrigo, no, he's the technology. I'm not with it. It's the technology. I'm not with it. What do they call that? A user error? I remember they can then touch it. Shan Van Misha. <laughs>